alone in honor of my book Tealies, a memoir of mothers and daughters being featured on the iHeart Staff Books website. I'm reading excerpts from the first chapter. Your grandmother read tea leaves. Startled, I looked up at my mother, sitting in her gold velour chair next to the end table, scattered with a few library books. From my mother's lips, the statement was a bad omen. My atheist, Bible-bearing, skeptical of anything less than a scientific mother, had long been a woman who believed in nothing. Superstition, even applied to our previous generation, was not admissible. What did she see? Her own face, probably. My mother shrugged. I made fun of her and told her she was old-fashioned and superstitious. Eventually, she stopped talking about it. I stopped to ponder the sliver passed to me about my grandmother. My mother's mother, who died when I was 12. I was 34 years old, and this was the first time my mother had told me that my grandmother had read tea leaves. Did she read them often? I don't know. Often enough, I guess. She used to read cards, too. Ordinary playing cards. She would take them from the deck and lay them out on the one table we had in the kitchen. An ace of hearts, good luck. An ace of spades, death. My mother's shudder punctuated the end of her sentence. She was 74, the same age as my grandmother when she died. My mother's matter-of-fact tone and my diversions into my grandmother's deliberating traditions did nothing to alleviate the direness of my visit. It was an early Sunday afternoon in early June. Earlier in the day, my partner Brumber and I had been clearing out cobwebs in the corners of the ceiling of the house that we had just bought and moved into. When I had the sun urge to call my mother, my instincts were right. My mother told me in an uncharacteristically faint voice that she had woken up a few days ago with crushing pain in her sternum. I felt like I was having a massive coronary, she told me. My mother, who never believed in doctors, went to one immediately. He ordered some x-rays, told her it was arthritis, and sent her home with some extra strength Tylenol. When she told me this, my mind reeled. This was her mother, someone who had walked four miles every day. Why didn't you call? I had asked her on the phone. I just did, she replied. I didn't argue 
But the fact was, I had called her. On the 45-minute drive over through the tree-lined streets of my neighborhood and onto the Pennsylvania Turnpike, I was in a panic about the conversation with my mother. There was something in her voice I had never heard before, a dead-end tone, a giving up. Illness or not, I couldn't conceive of her coming to a standstill. My mind raised. The bottom of my world began to drop away. Everything is fine, she said, noticing my concern. The extra strength tunnel isn't working yet, but it will. She shifted in her chair and went. I can make them some lunch, I said. I can do it, she replied, and struggled to stand up. Sit down, I said, as I got up and went to the kitchen where I made a simple meal of miso soup and warmed up brown rice. She joined me at the dining room table. The soup is good. You did a good job, Janet. Thank you. We ate in silence for several moments. What did the doctor say? I asked finally. Her lips crossed into an obstinate straight line. When I asked again, she told me the HMO primary physician she went to, a man whose office was in a house on the corner of the section where my parents lived, refused to give her a referral. The rheumatologist who my mother wanted to see was a woman doctor who she saw once before and liked. I brought a letter to her, said my mother, but I didn't hear from her. Maybe we can call her, I replied. A letter is easy to overlook. The stony look on my mother's face told me that was going on, that what was going on with her body was her business, and I simply could not drop in on her life and interfere. As my mother and I sat in the living room, the only sound was the ticking of my father's retirement clock on a high shelf. His reward for 35 years of working swing shift at the plant. There is more to my mother's silence than the privacy she wrapped around herself like a woolen shawl. By not telling me about her problems, she was protecting me. She was the kind of mother he didn't want her problems to become her daughter's problems. Through the years, my mother's auburn hair had faded to reddish beige. Now, as if it happened overnight, her hair had turned white. She stared at me with her green yellow eyes, cocking her head at me in Alice's curiosity. 
I, in turn, searched her face for clues. Was she breathing around tea leaves? In my 20s, having older parents meant that I began to worry about their well-being. Even when I didn't say anything, my mother would read my thoughts. It's hard watching a parents get old, she once told me gently. When we went for a walk at the shopping mall, she'd comment on the older couple she saw. One's in worse shape than the other, she said, and they're holding each other up. What happens when one of them falls over? There is no answer to a question. How can I reassure my mother about a future of which I also lived in mortal fear? My mother had always been active, walking, eating healthy foods, reading widely, taking an interest in life. But over the past several years, there were signs that she was withdrawing, what the medical professionals call shutting down, which can happen before the final stage of life. The first to go were her women's liberation marches. There weren't as many of them as in the early 70s, when I was a preteen, and my mother took me with her and later in the 1980s, when I encouraged my mother to come with me. But when smaller demonstrations did turn up, here and there, my mother refused to go. Oh, Janet, she would say, you know I hate crowds. The flat, almost sold song that crept into my mother's voice told me that she couldn't possibly even stand the thought of marching around with a placard, gleefully chanting, hey, ho, patriarchy's gotta go. Then one year, she decided not to plant her garden. It's too much work, she said, that same tone of resignation pressing down her voice. For as long as I can remember, after every meal, we sorted the garbage from the trash, the multiple from the non-multiple, to make topsoil for next year's organic garden from the steaming pile of compost in the backyard. My parents liked to joke that they were going to be buried in the compost pile when the time came. Each summer and fall, we ate the greens, the tomatoes, the endless dishes of learned squash. The garden was my mother's all-consuming passion, providing her with a company of other gardeners in the organic gardening club. Several times, my mother canceled her plans at the last minute to come and see me. All she said was that she decided she didn't feel like coming and then hung up. The thought of her not being able to endure it anymore, of her simply laying down and not getting up, 
was inconceivable. I would miss her terribly. My mother's death was unimaginable because she was more than my mother. She was the earth that I sprang from. She was my genesis, my creation story. Like everyone else, I had lost a parent. I had no idea what was in store for me as I looked at her sitting in her gold floor chair. Her face drawn in at once, contemplative and a different. Occasionally, she was so like into Catherine Hepburn, the inquisitive eyes, high cheekbones, candid manner, but with age, she looked less like a glamorous young woman and more like the tomboy that she had been as a child. And then pictures I stared into growing up, bowl cut hair, martial eyes, stubborn chin. Her features in the photo reflected my own, yet I studied them like the pieces of a puzzle. Increasingly, as my mother aged, I heard the wavering strains of my grandmother's voice and hers. As we talked, I recognized under our conversation was another conversation, and under that, yet another. The cadences went back at least three generations. My understanding of my mother and myself had begun with my grandmother. It had taken the better part of a century for our lives to fuse into mine, often in the form of pedigrees gusting through me. My grandmother died when I was 12. She was a spinner in the textile mills of Philadelphia in the Kensington section where the old warehouses were now old holes, broken down, abandoned. My mother grew up in this neighborhood of bustling industry, lace factories, Brussels rugs, textile mills, the stents in the head factory, slaughterhouses full of bloody entrails, as squealing animals, devastating scenes of poverty, replaced it, abandoned and crumbling houses, a tent city, homelessness, a child prostitution strip that was one of the largest in the nation. When my mother spoke of this place of her childhood, Tears came to her eyes. My grandmother Ethel, a devout Episcopalian, lifelong Republican, and wearer of white gloves, gave birth to my mother Jane, plain Jane, her childhood nickname, who became an equally devout atheist, burning her Bibles in the backyard, and a Democrat. My mother identified with the silent majority 
but was a feminist ahead of her time. And when she and when the women's liberation movement caught up with her, she joined it. When I was old enough, she sometimes took me with her, the two of us marching and attending rallies, waving our matching mother-daughter coat hangers and pro-choice events. I was a less adventurous one, hanging back and watching with something bordering on amazement as my mother heckled the hecklers and squeezed the balloon testicles of a Ronald Reagan cardboard cutout. My mother tossed away conventions with every year that she aged. Heels were replaced with comfortable walking shoes. Skirts were exchanged for trousers. Eventually, she discarded her bras for the skinny straps men's undershirts that she wore under her cotton blouses and short sleeve shirts that looked tailored on her slender frame. When referring to her mother's insistence that she be more of a lady, my mother always said, who the hell do, did she want me to be, Jackie Onassis? My mother married my father when she was 25 years old. The story was that they met on a blind day outside the nuthouse, and then they lived in the city for another 20 years. Then when my mother was 44 and I was four, we moved to Levittown, a suburban tractile community built in the 1950s, one part of Justola Village, the other part of American Dream. With a $100 down payment, the houses were affordable enough, and my father worked nearby at the chemical plant, one of the two major employers in the area, along with the steel mill. We lived on Quiet Road in Quincy Hollow. The street names in Levittown all began with the first letter of the section name, where my mother took her daily four-mile walk. Every day, I go round and around these streets like a hamster on a treadmill, my mother would say. As an adolescent, I fanned my mother's frustrations into the flames of my own self-destruction. I was drinking and drugging at 14, driving at 16. The streets looped around my neck like a noose tightening. For me, drinking and drugging was a form of running away. When I was five, I stored cheer, pilfered Cheerios, food for the road, in the bottom door of my bureau until a prayed advance sabotaged my plans. I was always intending to be on my way to somewhere else, but the drinking and drugging 
on my adolescent years just dug me in deeper. Eventually, my mother gave me a few not-so-gentle shots, and I ended up being the first in my family and the only one in my peer group to go to college. I left at home and attended Temple University in Philadelphia, an hour's commute away. After graduation, I moved back to the city my parents had fled from, but as a college graduate in a community of intellectuals and artists, I was worlds removed from my origins. Despite my need to escape, I kept going back, along with the practical reasons of visiting my aging parents. The landscape where I grew up was embedded in me. There are many things that invade the lives of working class people. Chief among the poverty, or in my case, the constant threat of it. There is resignation and frustration, a forbidding sense that things will never change. Then there is the internalized self-hatred, the futility of it all. The air I got breathing in Levittown was chemical laden. On clear days, the fumes were invisible. On past days, the air was a dirty glove clasped around our nostrils. When we drove past the marsh-lined road alongside the plant, well, the stench was, my, was the worst. My mother and I would hold our noses, and my father would call it the smell of body. It was my father's union job and my mother's skill in managing money that pulled my parents out of the poverty they had grown up in. Perhaps it was because of this belief in the American dream, be it reality or myth, that was visited with a vague, shimmering presence that eventually it came to call hope. Economic security can be a breeding ground for denial. My mother feisty enough to become, have become mythic in the minds of my father and me, had always lived in mortal fear of losing my father. Her own father had abandoned her family when she was seven, and this no doubt foreshadowed her fear. But her concerns were practical ones. My father worked swing shift in the plant's boiler room. Accidents happened. Growing up in the industrial Northeast, I watched the plant explosions on the nightly news. Then there were the killers that were slow to strike. More than a few of my father's co-workers were felled by cancer of all types and early heart attacks. The summer I worked at the plant, when I was in college, 
A man fell over dead in the guardhouse before punching out a sign card for the day. At the time, it all seemed unfair, so unfair and futile to me. A spot of asbestos showed up on my father's lungs, x-ray. When my mother got the news, her face paled. My mother had always been the strong one. She was traditional in the role of housewife, revolving her schedule around my father's shift work hours, washing his workloads for the 35 years he worked at the plant. But this didn't stop her from being the one who called the shots. We never expected that the hand that fed us will come out of the sky to strike her down. Today, my mother and I sat in her living room. It was cool in the house. My mother's feet rested on ottoman covered with a thread-worn tapestry. It was a mosaic of earth-toned flowers, rust, red, silvery green, dusty blue, thin black lines, outlined heart-shaped petals against a faded ochre background. As my eyes traveled along the lines, I saw my grandmother standing with the other women in the long straight aisle between machines in the textile mill on tiptoe as she dropped the spindles on their spikes crouching to check the weave, the warp, the weft. Close to half a century later, my mother had taken the discards her mother was allowed to take home from the mill and carefully stitched them into a square cover for the iron-legged ottoman. My mother felt diminished by her lack of a college education. As far back as I can remember, she always told me, it's what's inside her head that matters, followed by, no one can ever take an education away from you. In graduating from college, I fulfilled my mother's ambitions, but at the same time, in achieving what she could not, I betrayed her. She wanted me to have a better life than hers, but the opportunities in my life had been underscored with my mother's resentments. To gain a better understanding of my life, I went back to research the labor movement to read its history, its literature. Now my mother was telling me she was white collar, that she felt herself to be better than people in unions. I took a deep breath. My mother was just trying to lend a dignity into her life. She was brainwashed into thinking of herself as white collar and therefore better than people in unions, divide and conquer 
is how the powers that be have kept people in their places. But our conversation was not about white collar or blue collar. It was not about work even or the fact that I went to college and my mother did not. We were pressed up against opposite sides of the glass divide and our mother-daughter relationship. My mother and I were close. We saw eye to eye on most things that mattered. We read the same books, likened them to each other, sometimes even going to the bookstore together and deciding jointly what we wanted to read. There were moments between us when she seemed more like my friend than my mother. At the same time, there's almost always an unspoken tension between us. The things that come to us most deeply were also the things that divided us. There was, at least temporarily, my sexuality. When I came out to my parents in my early 20s, I was telling my mother, in particular, that my life would be vastly different than hers. At the same time, my lesbianism was a natural outgrowth of my mother's feminism. That most definitely shaped my early sense of self. My life was still entangled with my mother's for comfort. An only child, I absorbed her like a sponge, losing a sense of where she left off, and I began. The irony, perhaps, inherent in the tensions and difficulties between us was that we were both so much alike. Despite her increasing resignation, I wanted her to talk about her life, including her hopes and dreams that didn't come true. She refused, and in the face of her obstinacy, I became more insistent. Deep down, I felt my mother slipping away from me. My reaction to this was despair, and beyond despair, desperation. I wanted, needed, to know about the missing pieces of my mother's life, the puzzle that created me. The catch was that my mother wanted the same thing from me, and I, could too, could not deliver. Each of us had what my mother called selective memory, when we, we only remembered what we wanted to and felt like hell to forget the rest. In my teens and twenties, I often brightened my mother's mixed messages when danger defensiveness, sometimes outrage. In my thirties, I found it easier to join her than to fight. 
since my mother didn't want to talk about her health during my visit, I turned to inquiring about my grandmother's life. My mother was a woman who rejected the traditions about her mother's life. Before I was born, she burned her Bibles in the backyard, disgusted with the hypocrisies, the contradictions, and most of all, the misogyny inherent in the pages that curled into ash. My mother was a woman who tried to invent her own religion and failed. A transcendental meditation dropout, I tried and tried to levitate, to bounce myself off the floor by flexing my belt muscles. She joined the American Atheist for a few years, only to leave in disillusionment. They served coffee and donuts and passed the plate like, just like all the other idiots. She was a woman whose ambitions had been thwarted by circumstance, gender, and class. She was a woman who absorbed her mother's pain, made her own, and passed along to her daughter. When I tried to tell my mother that my grandma's life was worthwhile, important, I was trying to convince myself that my life, too, was important. Without grandma, the spinners, the weavers, the dyers, without the patterns of designer sort of, could never have been made into anything, I said. But my words were weak, unconvincing. How could they be anything else when I was not sure of myself? My mother couldn't give me was she herself never received. Whatever I did was never good enough, she said to me as we sat in the living room. I never wore the right kind of hat. And even if I do, did, I couldn't keep it on my head. I laughed and went into the kitchen to fix myself a cup of chamomile tea. As I poured the water into the cup, I noticed a tear in the corner of the bag. A few tea leaves, crushed yellow flowers, seeped into the water and swirled around. I stared into the white porcelain teacup, wondering, what kind of life would I have had? if knowledge and wisdom were passed uninterrupted and uncensored from my great-grandmothers down to my grandmother, mother, and then to me. This world shimmered up in me for a fleeting moment. Then I saw the reflection of my mother's face in mine, the lines of resignation her disappointments and her fears stared up at me. I shuddered, then skimmed the floating leaves away with a spoon, 
and my back into a living room. Like my mother, I was a hopeless realist. And at the same time, I was deep in denial. I didn't want to stick at the straight he leaves on my tongue. Even if I could have defined the future by bringing the TV shapes of dark clouds and crosses, I would not have wanted to. I was wary of astrologists and fortune tellers. It was more than a healthy dose of skepticism. It was superstition. I was afraid that if someone told me my future, I would have no choice other than to create that destiny for myself. The only omens I could read were the memories of my past. When I was a child, I brought home report cards saying I was an underachiever. In elementary school, I came home with bit parts and plays in which my mother thought I should starve. In junior high, my grades didn't measure up to study the foreign languages in which she expected fluency. When I reminded her of this, she denied it. She accused me of wanting her to be better. I in turn denied that I wanted my mother to be anyone except who she was. Neither of us were sure in our denials as we would have liked to be. Only one thing was certain, whichever way we turned the mirror, the reflection came up wanting. My mother was more stubborn than me. Her mind was made up. Their lives, her mother's and her own, were wasted, good for nothing of a survival. No amount of arguing or cajoling could have changed that. But she nodded her head to appease me, and by so doing, acknowledged that her life was linked with mine. You can get copies of tea leaves and memoir of mothers and daughters from Bella Books at your local library, your local bookstore, or wherever books are sold online.